This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message to listen to the latest stories and to leave a comment. Well, here he is. He staggered through the back door <laughs> and ready to go. Uh, I'm impressed. You are walking very well after your knee surgery. I am. It's been about two and a half weeks, and I don't need a walker anymore. And I'm walking, I'm driving, and I feel like I'm really doing very, very well. You took advantage of that walker, though. I, I really was kind of offended by what you did standing there on the street corner with the tin cup. Well, I was trying to get sympathy, not money. Do <laughs> you have anybody you want to acknowledge? I, I do. I want to say hi to Scott in Lexington, Virginia. He likes the fact that uh, our stories are pretty much substance and not a lot of fluff. And he wanted me especially to thank you, Zeb. Really? Yeah. He said, be sure to tell Zeb thank you for what we do here. Well, I appreciate that. And, thank you. And then Merrill, uh, he suggested we do a story. He, he's been a longtime listener on... The, there were some serial killers years ago called a family called the Benders. And I did a story on that, oh gosh, four or five years ago, uh, called the Bloody Benders. Were they the ones that had the outpost on the road and everybody yeah. had to stop? Yeah. And then they'd hit somebody in the head and throw them in a lime pit? <laughs> yeah. Was that the story? Yeah, that's the story. Oh. They'd be... I remember because it scared the daylights out of me. <laughs> Do not visit the Benders. No. No. So anyway, thanks, Merrill. Is that what it meant when it said you're going to go out on the weekend and have a bender and you never come home? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. Maybe that's where it came from. Well, uh, so today I'm going to talk about uh, river boats on the Missouri River. On the Missouri? Yeah, on the Missouri. Oh. Uh, we've talked about them on the, on the Mississippi and river boats out west, you know, right. uh, around uh, San Francisco area. But uh, So as a veteran traveler on the treacherous Missouri River, the stern-wheeled steamboat, the Montana, had survived a lot of dangerous things. Yet one day in 1884, while peacefully traveling near St. Louis at the eastern end of this 3,000-mile waterway, the Montana was caught by a current and sent crashing into the upright or the stanchion of a railroad bridge. You know, Ouch. The, yeah. And one of, uh, you know, there's quite a few of these bridges that did span the Missouri River. So you had to make sure you didn't run into uh, parts of the bridge. But anyway, it ran into it. And uh, that reminds me of a question I was going to ask you on a previous program. Okay. The bridging of these rivers back in the 1800s and 1900s. Right. 
Wow, that must have been tough without the equipment that we oh, have today. Yeah. I can't imagine how they how they even did that. I mean, it's just amazing. And a, tra- a train bridge, Zeb. Yeah. I mean, to carry tons and tons and tons of weight. But uh, by this time, there were probably oh three actual, including the transcontinental, uh, that were going across these rivers. So by now, in 1884, there were several uh, that were going across these. But anyway... Uh, so it hit the the bridge, and some of the cargo was saved, but uh, the old boat settled into the muck of the river's bed, and the Montana had made its final voyage. And the death of the Montana, the, again, this is 1884, kind of symbolized the the end of an era uh, of the of the river boats. Uh-huh. That was about the end. But for traders and settlers, soldiers and prospectors, preachers and gamblers, the Missouri River had long been the way to the west. And since the first paddle wheel voyage in on the river in May of 1819, when the little steamboat, the Independence, went 250 miles upriver with a cargo of flour, sugar, iron castings, and whiskey, some 700 different paddle wheelers had worked the Missouri. Wow. And of those... About 300 fell victim to a whole bunch of calamities. So almost half of them, Zeb, uh, impaled by snags, consumed by fire, crushed by ice, battered by violent winds, and not the least, being blown to smithereens by a boiler explosion. You know, you said fire. Were these old steamboats, were they really susceptible? Oh, yeah, it would. You know, they're oh. all wood, pretty yeah. much, yeah. yeah. So if they, if they caught fire, they were pretty much done. They were toast. Yeah, <laughs> literally. <laughs> but, you know, actually, since the profit of a single voyage might repay the entire cost of a vessel, the traffic continued until at last the steamboat, again, was overtaken by the railroads. Now, er, even in the early 1860s, the notion that a railroad might soon cross the country seemed fantastic. Nobody thought that could ever happen. Yet before the end of the decade, it had been done. You had these rock climbing surveyors. You had Irish construction workers, Chinese engineers, corporate promoters. And by the time the Montana met its end, there were three railroad lines crossing the continent by really? then. Yeah. Now, by then, the steamboats had all but vanished in 1880. Now, some river cities still maintained the illusion of growth. That year, 30 million tons of freight had been landed at Fort Benton, a booming river city on the Montana Territory, only 200 miles from the Rocky Mountains, and that's as close as they could get west from the east, Mm -hmm. was Fort Benton, and so only 200 miles from the Rockies. But a mere decade later, the last uh, packet departed from Fort Benton, and so that was the end of that. But uh, the Missouri River was a great watercourse of the prairies, and it was called the Big Muddy. And there was an old saying that it was too thick to drink and too thin to plow. Now, I thought the Big Muddy was uh, the Mississippi. Mississippi. Uh, Well, no, they they refer to the Missouri as the Big Muddy. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, and it's the longest river on the North American continent. It's longer than the Mississippi. Where does it stem from and to? It comes off the Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, just uh, just north of St. Louis. Okay. So and then goes of course clear up to uh, to Montana. Really. So it's the longest river on the North American continent. Wow. But it's a broad, dangerous stream. Uh, it's swept from sources on the Continental Divide to junction with the Mississippi, twenty three miles north of St. Louis. The Big Muddy enclosed a system of tributaries that watered more than half a million square miles of the Dakotas. 
Nebraska, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado. Hmm. So water coming from all those states combined to form the Missouri River. Wow. So the Missouri River rose twice a year. One period of high water began in April when spring rains and prairie uh, snowmelt often drowned the main valley under endless rushing brown water. The second time occurred in May or June when the sun began melting the snow fields of the Rockies and littering sandbars in low water with thousands of uprooted trees that were released when the water level climbed. Hmm. And here's what one guy said. I have seen nothing more frightful, and this was uh, a French explorer in 1673, I've seen nothing more frightful, a mass of large trees enter with branches interlocked, a floating island we could not without great danger expose ourselves to pass across. So can you imagine, Zeb, all these trees kind of forming an island? No, were these French explorers, you said? Yeah, 1673. In 1673, and, and they were probably in little bitty dinghy canoes. Yeah, going up the river. Oh, my. Uh, now, worse yet, was a submarine forest of trees that grew waterlogged. They sank at the heavy root end and hung in the river to form a hidden danger that could tear the, tear the bottom out of the hull of the boat in just seconds. I mean, if you hit that, you were pretty much done. Yeah. Now, each year, lots of steamboats found themselves on these snags and sank in the narrow channels at river bends, and they actually became a danger themselves. How did they ever clean it up? They didn't. I mean, these uh, uh, there were these skeletons of boats that were just, you know, sitting. Still there today. Well, I don't know about today. You know, I'm guessing that maybe most of those have been cleaned up by now, I I would think. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But, uh, you know, they sank and, and they became a danger to the other boats. But the river not only sent steamers the bottom, but it filled their holes with mud and sand so fast that they couldn't retrieve the gear or the machinery or try to raise the boat. How deep a river was it at certain points? Well, the the Missouri actually was very shallow in a lot of places, very shallow. And actually, I'm going to talk about that. Uh, to negotiate the Missouri, rivermen developed a special kind of boat. It was a flat-bottomed boat, and it was multi-tiered structure that was designed to slide over the water rather than move through it. Now, to save weight, the decks, the floor timbers, the bulkheads, and upper works were made of pine instead of the heavier oak because it was lighter. Now, the crafts, it it was kind of wedding cake-like structure. You had a main deck, 
then a boiler deck, then a hurricane deck, and then officers, quarters, and pilot house. And this eliminated the need for a deep hold. So it didn't have a deep hold that, that they could, like a regular ship, like an ocean-going ship that had holes, you know, that they filled with ballast and, and, and cargo. Well, there must have been some very deep points of the river if these ships went down and or these trees right. were submerged under the water. Yeah, so there had to be some deep as well as shallow. And yeah. I, I don't know how deep the deepest would have been. But uh, in all, a, a newspaper man from Council Bluff said the western steamer was put together from wood, tin, shingles, canvas, and twine. <laughs> Yet the vessel did its job, if only because its draft might be as little as 14 inches. Wow. So that's not very deep, you know. Now, although the lower Missouri was frequently graced by the side-wheel steamboats that became familiar on the Mississippi, the Big Muddy's upper reaches were more, uh, mostly the steamers with the single paddle placed in the back, in the, in the stern. And the reason, uh, because it saved weight and the paddle was less vulnerable to snags and permitted the broader beam hull with more cargo capacity. So it could be wider. But did they, with low water, I, I hate to keep pursuing this, but with low water, how could you use a paddle wheel in there? Well, evidently, you know, if you had 14 inches of water, you could That doesn't still... sound like enough water. You'd keep scraping the rocks. <laughs> I know. Uh, and they did get hung up, you know, a lot. Huh. But the paddles were driven by the most powerful but crudest, simplest, and most dangerous engine known to man. And that was steam, which is generated for the engines by batteries of two, four, or more cylindrical wrought iron boilers. Their fireboxes were mounted by a pair of iron chimneys. Now, they never called those stacks or funnels the chimney they called it a chimney really and those rose above the vessel's uh, structure sometimes as much as 100 feet above the deck so they weren't called stacks or funnels i wonder how much wood they could take on with them for their journey without having to stop go ashore and cut down some trees well there were people along shore that did that uh, they would stop and buy wood from people that were I that see. had cut wood but that them. wasn't cheap uh, no but, you know, during much of the period of the steamboat's popularity, water and pressure gauges were not in general use. Engine room crews relied largely on instinct to detect when boilers were building steam to dangerous levels. Coupled with this, the tendency of pilots to call for more boiler pressure whenever trouble lay ahead. As Riverman put that, there was nothing like, a, quote, a wad of steam to get a boat through rapids or propel it across a sandbar. Well, as a result, Missouri River boats blew up by the dozens. Really? The tragedy of the paddle wheeler, the Saluda, which produced perhaps the loudest and certainly the most deadly bang of them all. And I'm going to talk about that. Now, when they blew up, I mean, oh, I hate to sound uh, uh, facetious about this, but when they blew up, was there any warning? I mean, did the crew or were no. the crew lost and everybody died I, or I what? No, there was no warning. It just, boom, you were, it was done. Toast. Yeah. And it, so the Saluda, this occurred during the spring flood of 1852 when the river fed uh, all this ice, which littered uh, like a torrent down a channel. Oh, so boy. You don't think about ice coming no. down as being a danger, but it was. And so the boats used to skirt a wide promontory above Lex Lexington, Missouri. Now, on April 7th, Captain Francis Belt fired the Saluda hard, but the boat's power plant was simply incapable of coping with this fast-moving river. It couldn't make headway. 
Well, time and again, so the Saluda tried, but it hung up in the current and was washed back to, to shore. Finally, Captain Belt felt, uh, fell back on, uh, you know, and he tied up next to Lexington, right there at the wharf, okay? Now, another, after another failed attempt, uh, Belt walked into the engine room early on Good Friday, April 9th, and demanded to know how much more pressure the boat's boilers would stand. Quote, not a pound more than she's carrying now, replied the second mate. Mm. Well, Captain Belt ordered water injections shut off and the safety valve locked it down. And he said, quote, fill her, fi- fill her fire boxes up, he ordered. I want more steam. I'm going to round that point or blow her to heck trying. And he used the word heck. heck. I'm going to... Yes, sir. Yeah. That's a factual part of <laughs> Right here history. it says it, Zeb. Yeah. So, the Saluda had splashed through only two paddle revolutions. Remember, it's still tied up, still next to the dock. Oh, yeah. Okay. The paddle revolution went twice before the boilers exploded. Hadn't even got into the river. Kaboom. Captain Belt's corpse took a high course inland along with the bell on which he had placed one elbow on the seconds before his death, both landed high on a bluff above the river and rolled downhill together. A 600-pound safe uh, flew uh, through the air. Clerk Jonathan Blackburn was flung 200 yards from the river. Ashore, a local butcher was killed by a flying boiler flu. So people on shore were being killed, Zeb. Wow. Townspeople rushed to the river. They found, according to the St. Joseph Gazette, quote, the mangled remains of other human beings scattered over the wharf. The bodies of more than 100 crewmen and passengers were recovered, and about the same number were believed to have washed down the river. Now, remember, this was a fast-moving river. If people were thrown in the river... They weren't going to get them. Yeah, they'd find them down in what? Right. It was recorded as the worst disaster in the history of steam navigation on the Missouri. Now, up to that point. Now, there was another one that I've talked about, and we might talk about it another time. The worst on the Mississippi was in 1865, a riverboat called the Sultana. I've heard about that. Yeah. And there were, I think, almost 1,200 that died in that one. And that's that's another story for another time. 1,200 people on a riverboat. Yeah, there's Boom. a whole story behind Boom. that, too. Yeah. yeah. Now, for the crews who manned the steamboats, there was little time to enjoy the scenery. On the way to such upper Missouri towns like Sioux City, Yankton, Bismarck, and Fort Benton, on the whole, the rivermen fit the description offered by an 1838 government report as, quote, roughnecks of coarse habit, recklessness, and uneducated mind. Sounds like a radio station crew. <laughs> the roustabouts, or now they were called roosters. I didn't the, the, know that. The crewmen. Really? They were called roosters, as they were called, and they led a pretty harsh and exhausting life. Firemen stood four-hour watches, but deckhands remained on call day and night. They slept whenever they could grab a few minutes and were expected to carry cordwood, bales, and crates at a run over narry, narrow, limber gangplanks that were often slippery with rain or ice. You'll like this, Eb. The crew's food was frequently not very tasty. Well, imagine that. Though, on the bigger boat, Seb, this is good. Sometimes they were served pans of passenger leavings, which they scooped up with their hands, and they called this grub pile. 
Wait a minute. Uh, they were fed what was left on the plates? Yes. Oh, they were scraped into a pan, or, and they would eat you it. You always do that before know, lunch. Just before lunch. Yeah. Now, roosters, often in pre-Civil War days, were slaves whose owners actually charged wages for them. German immigrants uh, were next in dependability. Missouri farm boys were thought to be too independent. Irishmen were scorned as being of little account. Oh, heck, cried one pilot, <laughs> continuing to steam even be- after being informed that a deckhand had fallen overboard. It's only an Irishman. Oh, my. So he didn't even slow down. And he said, oh, heck. He said, oh, heck. I see. Yeah. Now, overseeing the work of his crewmen was the least of the many responsibilities that fell to the Missouri pilot. In the words of an experienced riverman, a pilot had to, quote, know the river as a schoolboy knows a path to the schoolhouse, upside down, endways, inside, outside, and crossways. Now, remember this, Zeb. There were no buoys, uh, beacons, or maps to go by. Missouri pilots had to memorize the big muddy's endless bars, bends, rapids, and chutes, and also the cliffs and dead trees, the clearings, the hills, and cabins that served as landmarks at which the steamer would end or aim when negotiating up the river. So if they saw, like, a cabin on shore, they knew that, okay, I've got to aim towards that, or I need to aim to the left of it or, or whatever. Now, peering through the window of his wheelhouse, the pilot had to recognize recent shifts in a stream that could change. Uh, A pilot also had to, quote, read water. In other words, to guess at a glance the speed of a current in a bend and decide from surface swirls and ripples whether the river concealed rocks, sandbars, or snags. Wind sometimes helped him by ruffling the water, uh, but rain kind of dappled the whole surface, and it it was not as easy to see things when rain was falling on on there. So. Uh, and then surface glare masked them, too. When the sun lay lower than 45 degrees above the horizon, it was hard to see. So now drifting ice, I mentioned that, was another menace, although every captain did his best to get back downstream by late autumn, and owners usually delayed upstream voyages until the worst of the river's winter had washed downstream. Sounds to me like it would have been much more efficient to put all the goods and services on a wagon. <laughs> Well, like I say, one trip could pay for a, a ship. Yeah, and boat. one ship could, could be also it. Go down. <laughs> now, an entire fleet of steamboats was ground to kindling at St. Louis during the Great Ice Gorge of 1856. Quote, rising water broke the solid, heavy ice near the city in late February, piled huge sections of it into huge, noisy hills and ridges, ridges and moved these grinding masses slowly downstream along with every conceivable object they encountered. Dozens of boats were ripped from their moorings at the St. Louis levee, then solid with steamers for 20 blocks. In other words, it became just a mass of boats, ice, and debris. You've only got one minute. Okay. Well, uh... You know, if the steamboat faced a list of obstacles, it often managed to endure the worst the Missouri had to offer. For decades, boats uh, multiplied faster than they went down. In 1859 alone, there were more than 100 vessels on the river. Uh, Anyway, the captains learned the fundamentals of their craft as lowly deckhands. Sometimes it took them as long as five years to become good enough to become a captain. I was just going to ask that. I mean, uh, Now, Mark Twain became a captain. Yeah, that's right. And, in fact, 
he talked to his younger brother into being a deckhand yeah. on another boat, yeah. which had an explosion and actually killed his brother. Really? Yeah, Mark Twain's. I'll be darned. Well, there you go with what seems like an exercise in futility trying to run a steamboat down the Missouri. You know, I might continue this next year because I've got more next information week about some of the captains. would be better than next year. Some, some of the captains. Yeah, you said next year. Next week. <laughs> did I say next year? Yes, you did. <laughs> Well, I'm in a hurry. <laughs> so am I. Okay. I hate to I hate to leave, but thank you. You bet. That was really interesting. Now the Missouri flows in a different direction, doesn't it? It that all goes to the uh, Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So when you get up in Montana on the Continental Divide, yeah. everything on the east side goes down that way. There you go. Yeah. Well, you better know your boats. <laughs> you better know which one to get on. Okay. Or not. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. History, a great, great guy, and we're really appreciative of the time and effort he puts into his programs. Thank you, Dr. History.